you know, the, the campaigning that went on over a period of close to two months was pretty horrible. We had one ad on TV where a Canadian sat there and said, I was in Canada when marriage equality uh, was achieved there and nobody told me that that meant that my children would go to school and learn about gay sex. And welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I, I have to just share with you all that that was probably the greatest number of takes that <gasps> we've ever had to get through the introduction. And that might tell you something about just how incredibly busy Dana and I are at the moment uh, and I've been traveling a lot and she's been very patiently trying to record these podcasts while I've been all over the place uh, and let's just say that it's a miracle that we still keep getting them out every week. It is a bit of a miracle but we do it because we love them and we love you our wonderful audience. Yes that's and exactly right. There's so many interesting people to talk to and interesting and important topics. messages to bring through yes. the podcast and today we have another one. Yes, speaking of which, yeah, today uh, Julie is bringing you an interview she did with Paula Gerber, who is an Australian academic and focuses on issues around uh, LGBTQI issues. That's right. So Paula is a professor of law at Monash University, where she heads up the Human Rights Centre. Uh, I met Paula at a dinner that was put on by academics and people in the Justice Department in Victoria while I was in Melbourne. And uh, it, we had a great conversation, not just about access to justice, but also about the work that she does as an activist for LGBTQI issues. Now, let me just say something about the I, because I had to ask her. Mm -hmm. I is for intersex. Professor Gerber was very active in the campaign for marriage equality, which culminated in a successful referendum at the end of last year. And I think quite a lot of people in North America know about that. She has also been very instrumental in another part of advocacy of LGBTIQ issues, which is expunging criminal convictions which have remained on people's records for consensual homosexual sex when it was illegal and, of course, restrict them in terms of their employment possibilities. So she has actually been uh, extremely important, Paula, in getting those convictions expunged throughout Australia state by state in order that that does not continue to discriminate against people. So, Paula, I did a little background research, which I certainly needed to do before talking to you this morning, on some of the milestones for LGBTI uh, rights in Australia. And I found, as I would have expected, gradual decriminalization of male homosexuality um, in the various states. Although, as late as 1997 in Tasmania, and I was a little surprised by that. And of course, many, many other discriminations remained, which have only been dealt with much more recently, including differing ages of consent for hetero and homosexual sex, bans on same-sex couples adopting, bans on LGBTI people in the military, and so forth. And then last year, uh, and this is an event that many people in North America will remember, a national referendum voted 62 to 38% to legalize gay marriage 
marriage, and that was followed with legislation at the end of last year. So there have been a lot of developments here. Can you talk a little bit to begin with about the current state of LGBTI rights in Australia and in particular what you see that still needs to be done? Certainly. Be delighted to do that. It's, I think, fair to say that we have a lot of momentum at the moment for reform following the marriage equality uh, victory last year. So we need to work on that and to keep uh, advocating for the changes that still need to happen. But I think it is important to acknowledge that we've had a fairly checkered history and the fact that Tasmania, it was not until 1997 Mm. that they decriminalised consensual same-sex sexual conduct and they still did that kicking and screaming. Mm. It took uh, Nick Toonan and his partner Rodney Croom taking a case to the United Nations alleging that Australia was breaching international human rights law by continuing to criminalise homosexual sex Mm. and the the UN said absolutely Australia Mm -hmm. and Tasmania um, argued till they were blue in the face that uh, they should be entitled to protect the morals and the public health of Tasmania and the UN uh, rightly threw that out. But uh, since then we've had uh, um, some some really positive improvements and one of them has been the expungement of those convictions in Tasmania and Victoria and the other states of Australia because it was great that it was decriminalised but the legacy continued. Right, with people having criminal records. Exactly, yeah. and that impacted on their ability to get jobs yeah. because so many things now, so many employment opportunities require police checks to volunteer, all that sort mm. of thing. So Victoria was the first state to, uh, to expunge those convictions and to subsequently issue an apology which was a great a great step forward um, it's fair to say that marriage equality has been consuming LGBTI uh, advocates Energies, for the last yeah. several years and it's been a an exhausting process uh, you you mentioned at the start of the referendum there was absolutely no need for us to have a referendum in mm-hmm. Ireland it was necessary because they could not change their constitution without a referendum right. here all Parliament had to do was pass a bill and say marriage is between two people, full stop. Okay, it well, that's done. interesting. So why? Why did they feel they needed somehow the legitimacy or the affirmation of a national referendum? It was purely politics, yes. nothing to do with law. So we change prime ministers almost as, as frequently as we change our Yes, I have actually noticed. And, and <laughs> we within the same party. So we had uh, Tony Abbott was Prime Minister when the Liberal government was elected. He was rolled by Malcolm Turnbull. Tony Tony Abbott is incredibly conservative and very opposed to marriage equality, notwithstanding that his sister is a lesbian who's in a long-term relationship and wants to marry her partner. Malcolm Turnbull is in the gayest electorate in Sydney and is very pro-marriage equality. So you had these two different camps and, and... almost evenly divided, it seemed. So they went down the path of saying, we'll have a referendum. But then they couldn't pass the legislation that it was needed to have a referendum. So they went down this sort of uh, cheaper second-rate version, which was to have a postal survey. You know, the, the campaigning that went on over a period of close to two months was pretty horrible. We had one ad on TV where a Canadian sat there and said, I was in Canada when marriage equality uh, was achieved there and nobody told me that that meant that my children would go to school and learn about gay sex in the classroom and Australia don't make the same mistake we did mm-hmm. um, because it has far bigger implications So a lot think. of scare tactics. A lot of scare tactics. So, Paula, when the survey, the referendum, as we'll call it yep. for shorthand, took place... 
Was there really any doubt? I mean, this is a pretty big margin, and we've seen similar margins, I mean, in Ireland, which, of course, as a, as a Catholic country, that was absolutely extraordinary. Was there really any doubt that this would be the outcome? Um, people were optimistic because we had opinion poll after opinion poll that overwhelmingly showed the Australian populace supports marriage equality. But we also had in our mind Brexit, and we also had in our mind Trump. So there was a lot of fear. There wasn't confidence at all. And it's interesting that you say you think that is a big margin. And the the sense that the LGBTI community in Australia had was that this survey was designed in the way to maximise the chances of, of the no vote getting up. How? Well, how many young people do you know who've ever actually posted a letter? <laughs> You know, so That's a very were, good point. People were, you know, sort of posting these pictures of red mailboxes and say, this is where you go and take your, your letter and post it. <laughs> um, the Every opinion poll was, you know, broken down into the age groups and the only age group that had a higher number of people opposing marriage equality and supporting was the over 65s, mm-hmm. who are the most comfortable using the postal survey system. The other thing is Australia is quite unique in having compulsory voting. Yes. So we and this was also a compulsory vote? No, this wasn't. Oh, it was not. It was not. Um, so we were very worried that the, the non-binding nature, the old-fashioned snail mail, all were going to um, conspire against a strong yes vote. So with marriage equality now and with... And, you know, I'd love you to say a bit more about how you were very instrumental, I know, in the campaign to expunge criminal convictions... You may, it, this may look like Australia is on the path to creating uh, a far more equal society and one with less discriminations and prejudices against the LGBTI community. But I suspect you're going to tell me that a lot remains. A lot remains. And I think one of the uh, legacies of this postal survey was it really galvanised the no campaign. And uh, I've been very surprised by the the level of funding they've got, including a lot from sort of evangelical groups in America um, who are looking at this as saying, well, we've lost the, the, the fight in America, but now let's spread homophobia to other parts of the world. Um, and the the really the... the the toxic nature of their campaign. So a lot of people thought that they were going to feel hugely relieved and joyous and excited when when the postal survey results came in, and they did for maybe a day, and then they just felt fatigued and bruised and battered, and and particularly rainbow families. There was a lot about, um, you know, these sort of red herrings, these furfies of, you know, think about the children. Children have a right to a mother and a father. And I was out there saying, look... That ship has sailed. We have had um, access to fertility treatment for lesbians and same-sex couples for years. There are already thousands and thousands of children in same-sex families. In those families, families, yes. The only thing is that their parents can't marry. But to suggest that somehow allowing them to marry is going to create, you know, all this generation... Social dysfunction. They actually (laughs) used the language of stolen generation, which is the language that was used for Indigenous Indigenous children who were removed from their families and placed in white families. And they, the the opponents of marriage equality said, we're creating another whole generation of stolen generation of children who are growing up being denied a father or a mother. Um, We also have the situation where 
our anti-discrimination legislation says you cannot discriminate against anyone on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity unless you are a religious The religious exemption, yes. Yeah. I was actually about to ask you about that. Yes. yes, and so we now have this ridiculous situation where a gay couple can get married on Saturday and one of them's a teacher at a religious school on goes to work on Monday and gets fired because they found out that he's gay, he married his partner, boom, you're no longer entitled to work here. So I really like the model that the UK has, which says that if you get any government funding at all for your religious body, then you have to comply with the anti-discrimination laws. You cannot discriminate against someone on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So I think that's a really useful model because our religious schools and our um, hospitals that are run by religious organisations receive a huge amount of government funding. And I think once you've got taxpayers' money, then you should actually have to comply with the law of the land anymore. And, of course, you know, there's a religious minister is not can't be forced to marry a same-sex right. couple or things like that. Right. Um, we had a lot of the, you know, the gay bakers not being forced to make wedding cakes. And uh, you know about the Supreme Court, yes. Court case of, in the U.S. about that, yes. I'm sure. Yes. yes. Um, but, again, I consider that just another scare tactic. Uh, and one wonderful uh, political commentator said, will someone please produce this, this these bakers who don't want to make... Uh, cakes for for gay weddings because you know nobody's putting their hands up saying right. I'm the I'm the one who doesn't right. want to make the cake so right. I right. think that's all a bit of a storm in a teacup yeah yeah, yeah. so Paula I want to ask you a little bit about this whole notion of public apologies which in the light of what you've just been talking about um well I don't want to anticipate your answer too much but we have just seen uh in Canada, a public apology in Parliament by Justin Trudeau uh, when the legislation was introduced to expunge criminal convictions for same-sex consensual relationships. And it was done in a, I think, uh, very genuine way. Um, Just to, you know, give you one little quote from it, he apologised for what he described as, quote, decades of state-sponsored systematic oppression and rejection. And I know there have been similar apologies made by premiers in um, Australian states as well. I'm always curious how those apologies really feel for the groups who are being apologised to. And, of course, we have other precedents in relation to apologies to Indigenous people and, and so forth. But what do you think the LGBTI community feels about those apologies? How useful or meaningful... Are they? I'm, I've uh, changed my opinion on this. Mm. I initially thought this is just tokenistic. It's um, a way of, you know, something they can do easily and cheaply. You don't need a budget line item to do it. It's not real law reform. It's not real change. Right. I was in Parliament when Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier, was the first one in Australia to apologise and I actually on my office door at Monash University have part of his speech taped up there Mm. because it was so moving there wasn't Mm. a dry eye in the gallery and he said things like the laws were wrong then, they were wrong now, Mm -hmm. we never should have sanctioned this sort of discrimination we are sorry, we are sorry for the harm that was done to generations and sitting in in that gallery in Parliament House were a number of men in their 60s and 70s who had convictions for 
gay sex in the days back then and to see their reaction and and they never thought they would live to see the day when someone would actually acknowledge the wrong that had been done to them yes so i'm i'm a big believer that i used to think law was the answer if we get the law right then everything else follows and will fall into place i now think that that's overly simplistic that we need a much more holistic response that includes things like apologies and acknowledgement of past wrongs, but also includes things like education. So we do need, if we're not going to have future generations that are going to be subjected to the same sort of discrimination of the bygone era, then we need to make sure that in our schools, children are learning about human rights, not just human rights for LGBTI people, but for for Muslims, for people with disability, for Indigenous people, etc. I think we have a a long way to go before we really are a a society that truly respects um, equality and diversity. So, Paula, you're obviously very comfortable um, combining your activism with your scholarship as a professor um, and the deputy director of the Human Rights Centre here. So I'm interested in how you think academics like yourself can play a particular role. What is the, if you like, unique contribution that you might be able to make as a scholar and someone based in a university to advancing LGBTI rights? Well, I think I'm in a very privileged position. You put the title professor in front of your name and people listen to you. (laughs) So, you know, a a young uh, LGBTI person could say exactly the same thing that I'm saying and get no traction. But when Professor Gerber says it, people listen. So I think that that comes with that privilege comes responsibility Um, to use my position to uh, advocate for change and, and for reform. And so... Governments, you know, the catchphrase at the moment is they all want to make um, evidence-based policy and decisions. So I see my role as, as giving them that evidence. Right. So I can do the the research that talks about the extent and uh, to which LGBTI community is discriminated against, how they're discriminated against, the impact that that has on people. And it makes it much easier for the government to then go, OK, we need to fix this problem because here's the evidence that it's, it's a problem. We're not just talking about a few anecdotes or a few, you know, um, opinion pieces in, in, in the media. Marriage, the marriage quality debate just consumed everyone for, for right. years, yeah. really. And there are so many other issues that need to be addressed. And one of them is, you know, we are in the Asia-Pacific region. There are still 20 countries on our doorstep where it's a crime to be gay. And I yeah. think that Australia ha- could be playing a much bigger role mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. helping LGBTI activists in those countries yeah. um, advocate successfully for reform in, in that area and to decriminalise. And hopefully now that we've achieved marriage equality, we can start looking at some of these uh, other issues, not just in Australia, but actually in our region. So obviously you're not going to be short of a few f- future projects here. Uh, no, plenty, <laughs> so, plenty on my side. <laughs> so... The last question I wanted to put to you, Paula, um, and this partly comes out of the conversation that we had a couple of days ago when we first met and discovered, I think, you know, a few points of commonality in our past experience. And I know you have worked all over the world and you've worked in law firms. You also have this specialism in construction law, for example. Um, And the industries that you've worked in, including legal education, were when you began, as when I began, and still are to some extent very male-dominated in terms of their culture. So what do you say 
two young women who are going into an industry that is still very much dominated by chauvinistic norms. What do you tell them about how to survive and what the good strategies are? Um, I try and be positive about that, but I also I, I share with them a story that, that really, I think, epitomises what I was dealing with in the early days of working in construction law. So I was a young solicitor in London and I had to go to a construction site to interview um, a worker there about what had happened on the project. Mm -hmm. And I turned up to the gate of the construction site, it was at Canary Wharf, and I was in my suit carrying a business, uh, sorry, a briefcase, and the guy on the gate said, oh, you must be the stripper. (laughs) And... I just sort of looked horrified, and it turned out that the the contractor was a Canadian company, in fact. Oh, no. And one of the workers was going back to Canada, and as a farewell to him, they had organised a stripper to come to the site at exactly the same time that they'd organised a solicitor to come to the site. Mm. Um, So I don't think... Easy mistake to make, of course. Easy mistake to make, yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't think I could have looked less like a stripper if I'd tried. And, you know, I think what's so interesting, though, is that there are more women in all of these settings now you know there are more women maybe in construction law but certainly in legal practice there are more women in the legal academy yet there are still so many ways in which that chauvinism continues and I think that's one of the things that I find so saddening and why my experience and your experience we would hope it's no longer relevant that it's just a historical relic but it actually feels like it is still relevant so do you tell your young women students just suck it up be determined be ready for it no and in fact I almost think that I learn as much from them as I teach them because they are actually really confident and they go out there expecting that the world is their oyster Mm -hmm. and that they're not going to experience any of the the discrimination or the uh, harassment that that, uh, previous generations before them have faced. And on the one hand, I don't want to disillusion them. Mm. Um, I want them to go out there and feel like they can conquer the world and that there's absolutely no difference between them and their male peers. I don't paint too negative a picture, mm-hmm. um, but I do tell them to uh, to be strong, to not put up with any, with any bullshit mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to rely on their networks and their peers really um, use their friends and their uh, uh, colleagues to be their support networks, that they don't have to do this on their own. You know, I think that's one of the best parts of my job is that I get to to, uh, to mentor and support my students as they embark on their, on their legal profession. Yeah. So I am forever optimistic and I do think things are going to change and I think we are in a good momentum at the moment um, and I hope it lasts. Well, let's leave it on that upbeat note. Thank you very very much indeed, Paula. My pleasure. Thank you, Julie. Thanks. There's so many interesting topics for discussion in that conversation, and uh, we've had a hard time narrowing down really, we have <laughs> what what specifically we want to kind of debrief about here. But the first thing that we want to talk about is um, Paula's. Um, statement of what it was like to go through that campaign um, that ended in the referendum mm. Mm. and how, of course, they were, 
you know, a little anxious about it to begin with because they were looking at what had happened uh, with Brexit and, of course, with Trump in the U.S. And the relief of ultimately it came back that that they won. But then what that led to, this, this postal... <laughs> postal service referendum led to was kind of a rejuvenation homophobic viewpoint and that now this kind of group has been funded by U.S. evangelical groups and it's just exhausting fighting against all of this homophobia and she provided several really kind of horrifying examples of that. I mean it seems such a a wonderful thing looked at from the outside. Oh, look, Australia has passed marriage equality uh, in a referendum, but she really gave me the inside scoop mm -hmm. on this. And I didn't know uh, the politics of why they did a referendum or why they chose to do it by post, which... <laughs> in some ways is, is just kind of bizarre. I mean, it's a little bit laughable. Yes, yes. I mean, the idea that they were actually having to educate young people on what post boxes <laughs> looked like. But, you know, it, it also brings home how cynical some of these calculations are because, mm -hmm. as Paula points out in the interview, there really wasn't a need to have a referendum. If there had been the political will to do this, mm -hmm. there was clearly the public support there. And, of course, as you've just said, the, the unfortunate consequence of the campaign and the vote, even though looked at from the outside, it just looks like a wonderful victory for LGBTQ rights, was that it did stir up a great deal of homophobia. There was no legal reason no, yeah. to hold a referendum, and it seems like opinion polls were very clear that Australians would support this. So another very interesting to me uh, thing that you talked about with Paula was this religion loophole mm. that um, religious organizations uh, are not required to necessarily be held to the same standards of non-discrimination as, as other groups, mm. even when they may be taxpayer funded. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that's very troubling. Yeah, this was a subject that everybody wanted to talk about when I was in Australia. Uh, a couple of times I was asked about this in interviews, and I certainly don't regard myself as a legal expert in this area. I would defer to many others. But Australia is struggling with the issue that we have seen, for example, beginning to uh, emerge in the United States, where increasingly states are passing religious exemption laws to allow religious institutions to opt out of anti-discrimination legislation, including anti-discrimination legislation that um, is about gay and lesbian rights. So, you know, this is not an unfamiliar area. And of course, the rationale is that if you are a religious school, for example, you ought to be able to decide if you want to hire someone who is gay or lesbian. There have been some cases in Canada as well, where there has been a look at the human rights codes in both BC and Ontario that I can think of cases Australia hopefully will make a good decision about this and we will not see a continuation of what is often uh, a rationalization of continuing discrimination against different groups. So one of the other things that we've been talking about is the issue, and you asked Paula about this, about her opinion about government apologies and mm. the fact that the Australian government made the apology to all of these people who had been convicted of a criminal offense. For having consensual sex. For having consensual sex, sex yeah. Um, and I thought this was very interesting, her response, that initially her feeling was about 
you know, things like government apologies, that this was just tokenism. It was just something easy to do that didn't really mean anything. Yeah, just something staged. Yeah, but after witnessing it and seeing the the power of at least this apology that, that felt very sincere, um, she was moved to consider how um, uh, an apology like that can be part of a holistic approach to to change in society. And, you know, when coupled with, of course, um, changes in the law and education, mm. it can be a really important part of that. And, of course, you know, the you know one of the big keys there is education, and you talked about that as well. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think it, it was so interesting. We had had a number of conversations earlier, Paula and I, about this, how often you begin as a law professor or a lawyer, somebody working in the legal system with a great deal of faith in the power of law to affect social change. And then gradually, bit by bit, as you work on different campaigns and issues, you see that law is very important, but it is absolutely inadequate to do the job all by itself. And so uh, I have been really interested for some time, um, as have others, in this whole um, notion of an apology and what it means. And, and a little like Paula, I mean, I began pretty skeptical, but mm. I have certainly seen examples both in um, sort of very large public apologies, such as the one that Justin Trudeau made about LGBT rights last year, and also just in an individual level when I've worked with people in mediation. Apology is a very, very powerful thing. And as Paula said, so is educating kids in schools so that they are not afraid of people mm -hmm. who might otherwise seem different to themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, I wanted to talk about something that has really become kind of a, a thread that has linked a lot of our episodes. So Paula, as uh, in almost the same words that Benny Tai used and Dr. Annika Smith used, said that being an academic is uh, a privilege and that it gives you a position of power and privilege that is important to wield well. And I just, I love that because they basically all use the same language. And yeah, I think it's that very that's, striking, it's isn't so it? It's so striking. It's so yeah. great. Uh, but one of the things that, I mean, they all, they kind of all say that and then have their own kind of interesting element to add. And Paula's, for me, was her talking about how for her, being a researcher and being an academic is like she's providing evidence to the government and to society that systemic change needs to happen, that they can't just say, well, this is just like a couple of people anecdotally talking about mm. this, that she is, is, is gathering the evidence and saying, no, this is a, this is a, a legitimate study. This is um, looked at carefully. And we see by the numbers and by the research that, that this problem is a problem and that right. it needs a solution. And so, I yeah. think that the way that Paula and Benny and Annika and some of our other guests think about using uh, that academic privilege is, yes, to be hopefully the person who can provide credible research, but also to go one step further and say, and because of this credible research, you should now do the following things. Mm -hmm. In other news, we're very excited to announce that NSRLP has been awarded $100,000 from the Law Foundation of Ontario's Family Law Access to Justice Fund. 
We will be partnering with local public libraries to develop a pilot program designed to better serve self-represented litigants coming to their local public libraries. The Windsor Public Library and the Essex County Public Library have both committed to partner with NSRLP to develop resources and public educational programming for SRLs. As the SRL crisis is first and foremost an access issue, nothing seems more appropriate than partnering with public libraries, whose mission it is to provide access to information. Library staff frequently see patrons seeking legal information, and both Windsor and Essex County librarians are excited about this opportunity to provide assistance and resources to this underserved population. Our long-term goal is to develop a new role for public libraries, supported by librarian training materials, SRL resources, and best practices learned from this pilot, in order to replicate the program at public libraries across the country. I'm personally very excited to announce that I will be heading this project, working three days a week with local librarians and connecting with my professional roots in the library world. We wish to sincerely thank the Law Foundation of Ontario for their generous support of this project. Stay tuned to the NSRLP website for more information as the project develops. Thanks to NSRLP RA Becky Robinette, we recently had a remarkable Australian case brought to our attention, dealing with questions of self-representation. The case focused on a woman, Betty, with learning disabilities, cared for by her mother, Maria, whose first language was not English. The mother and daughter were criminally charged under the Building Act with failing to demolish their home, presumably for safety reasons, after an arsonist burned it down. Both were fined, and the daughter received a criminal conviction. Their appeal was also dismissed. The Supreme Court of Victoria found that the self-represented parties had not been fairly treated by the first judge, who did not explain to them the procedure that would be followed or the legal test that would be applied. The hearing was conducted quickly, confused in relation to the important background facts, and not fully understood by Maria and Betty. Betty and Maria appealed under the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act of 2006, claiming that their rights to equality had been violated by the way in which the hearings were conducted and the lack of assistance provided to them. The appeal court agreed with them. This case will be of interest to those considering the idea of using the Canadian Charter to protect SRLs. And you can find the full case posted on our podcast webpage. Finally, we have some upcoming NSRLP publications to tell you about. We are about to release our 2017 intake report. This is our annual report tracking the ongoing data we collect via an intake form on our website that we invite SRLs to complete. The new report analyzes the data we received from 66 SRLs who completed the intake form in 2017. The 2017 report finds very similar SRL demographics to previous years, showing that this is a problem across all income levels. There was a sharp decline this year in the satisfaction with previous legal services, which many SRLs have paid for. There was also an uptake in the use of mediation services by SRLs. As in previous years, SRLs have a lot of advice for others, and much of this is very specific and comprehensive. For more, stay tuned for the release of the report in the next few weeks. Thanks to Kayla Scaro and Becky Robinette, two of our RAs who have done a terrific job analyzing the data and writing this year's report. Also, we will begin to release reports this spring and summer on what we have seen in our systematic tracking and analysis of the jurisprudence in creating the SRL case law database. We have identified a number of themes, including cost awards against SRLs, cost awards in favor of SRLs, gender-based language in decisions involving SRLs, and the impact of the 2017 Pintia case. And we will be reporting on these in a research report series. We are also hoping to be able to post the entire searchable database, open to all, 
on our website by the fall. As always, links related to these news items can be found on our podcast webpage, representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. That's it for jumping off the ivory tower this week. Join us next week when we'll be talking to our graduating research assistants, Lydia Ambronio, Sandra Shushani, and Becky Robinette, about what they've learned about access to justice during their time working for NSRLP and how that will influence their legal careers. They've got a lot to say, and it's sure to be a fascinating conversation. Stay tuned. <laughs>